Well, good morning to all of you. It's a joy to preach in the name of Christ, and it's a joy to be here uh, at Prairie again. It's not often I get to a church a thousand miles from home where, uh, how should I say this? I, I don't really know you. I know who you are, but I can't really say, you know, I know you because you don't really know somebody till you live with them. But uh, at least uh, I know who most of you are. And so it's a joy to be with you today. You can open your Bibles to the book of James. Chapter 1. James uses a word that is not used much in the scriptures. It's used a lot in our language today, and that's the word religion. Uh, I don't think Jesus ever used the word religion. Paul didn't use the word religion, but James uses it. In verse, the last verse of the first chapter, he mentions religion. He mentions it in verse 26. He talks about being religious, and but verse 27, he talks about pure religion. Now, religion is, uh, the word religion translated for us in English comes from two Greek words, uh, combining the idea of, uh, of something that's outward expression of worship. Now, worship is an experience of the heart and the spirit. We worship in spirit, but worship, but religion is an outward expression of worship combined with the idea of, of fear of the gods, basically what the word religion means. And he talks about religion and undefiled. And he talks pure religion and undefiled. So there must be pure religion and defiled religion. I uh, read an account in one of uh, Marin Augsburger's book. Marin Augsburger was an evangelist at Mennonite Church years going by. As far as I know, he still lives. He grew up in northeastern Ohio, and uh, I understand this story was a real account that he gives that happened in that area. Um, and he tells about a man driving into a farm stead. We're going in the lane into this farm, and uh, there at the farm he noticed a barn and a house and a garage. And uh, as he drove in there, he noticed three modes of transportation sitting in the garage. There was the buggy and a black Chevrolet and a red Camaro. And uh, he thought, well, that's interesting. And so he got there and he discovered that uh, three generations lived in this house. And he met uh, a young man there first. And he said to him, uh, he said, uh, I notice there's three different modes of transportation out here in the garage. He said, is there any significance to those modes of transportation? And the young man said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, he said religion for my grandfather was an experience. For my father, it's a tradition. 
And for me, it's a nuisance. Now, you can decide which generation was driving what. You probably already assumed that, say. And I'm not saying that by this, that uh, uh, driving a buggy makes religion an experience. I suppose if we would all drive buggies, it'd be a new experience for me. Uh, it'd be an experience. But uh, the fact is that religion, and I want you to think about this uh, in the form of a question this morning. Is your religion... Think about it personally. Is your religion an experience? Is it a tradition? Or is it a nuisance? I think that's a fair question. Now we're, our text here from James says pure religion and uh, undefiled before God. Religion uh, uh, can become defiled. And there's nothing so wicked as religion when it becomes false. Nothing so wicked as religion when it becomes false. Now, defiled religion, uh, maybe there's, I'm not sure we can put it all in two categories, but uh, religion has a tendency to become defiled. And James talks about pure religion. He said pure religion uh, is, gives an expression. Pure religion includes a, uh, an outward expression. Now, there are religions. Um, one of the ways that religion has been defiled is what we call asceticism. Now, asceticism is any system of religion that puts works before salvation. In fact, Christianity is the only religion that puts salvation before works. Every other religion, every false religion has works, works, works. But the Christian religion and even uh, our own denomination has not been free of asceticism. We are here, uh, uh, you, you all practicing Lent? It's like, what's Lent, right? But Catholic churches and a lot of Protestant churches uh, practice Lent. And that's a part of asceticism. That is, during this, what, 40 days before Easter, that I deny myself of certain things, you know. Things that are not necessarily wrong. You know, some people deny themselves of eating candy for 40 days, you know. Uh, there are people who have worse habits than candy, and... And you say, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I, this is Lent, and I, I'm not, I'm not going to smoke for 40 days. Yeah, and so I deny myself of whatever. So maybe good things, bad things. Um, and, and so this matter of asceticism is, you know, Jesus, Jesus didn't teach asceticism. Jesus taught that deny Self. There's a difference between self-denial and denial of self. Jesus didn't teach self-denial. He taught denial of self. And there's the difference, say. Now, maybe I could illustrate that and put asceticism might be a big word, but maybe I can put it in an illustration that we understand, say. Uh, you know, I am, I guess, by far the oldest person here. Uh, is there anybody else here 
that can remember when the ladies did not have automatic washers and remember the ringer washer. Anybody here can remember the, oh yeah, there's a couple people here. Remember the ringer washer? Sure, all right. Well, when we got married, we didn't have an automatic washer. We had a ringer washer. See, that, that dates me, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, so now we have automatic washers. And so, asceticism would say, you know, this is so handy. And uh, you see, asceticism has the idea that, that even if I suffer, you know, if I, if I suffer by not eating chocolate candy, God's going to be happier with me. Now we go to Japan, we go to the Philippines where they have, you know, Buddhism and so on. Uh, they even have people who will lay on a bed of spikes for so long, as long as I can handle it and I suffer. And then God will be happier with me if I deny myself, suffer, see. So it has to do with this idea of, of suffering. And so you, you decide that you are going to sell your automatic washer and suffer that pleasure and go buy a ringer washer. Okay. And so you do that for a while. And then you say, well, maybe, you know, since God is happier with me now that I have suffered the convenience, he'd be happier with me if I would sell my ringer washer and buy a scrub board. Now, you don't remember the scrub board, see? And so I suffer by using the scrub board instead of an automatic uh, ringer washer. And then after a while, you say, you know, maybe God would be happier with me if I would just use some rocks and rub my clothes in the rocks and suffer the convenience of a scrub board. And then where do you go from there if you're going to please God? Say, well, maybe he'd just be happier with me if I didn't wash my clothes at all. See? And so you never get done. You never get done pleasing this God because you never get know when you've suffered enough. See? And Jesus in our Sunday school lesson said he was talking about his suffering he said, it is finished. I have suffered. Now, it's not that the Christian life don't involve suffering. But it's this idea that by religion has become defiled by this system of asceticism that if I deny myself of things instead of denying myself of myself. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. And we can deny ourselves of all these things and let itself be on the throne. See, that's false religion. Another side of false religion is another big word called antinomianism. And antinomianism is the idea of, of uh, instead of all these laws and rules about how to practice religion, say, is that there are no rules. And, and, and Mennonite churches become afflicted with antinomianism that we have no standards. Uh, you know, it's all abstract. It's all a matter of, you know, you know, let me say it this way. The greatest lie, the greatest lie, I told the students this in Maranatha the other day, 
The greatest lie that's been perpetrated among the Christian church is that it does not matter how you live. The biggest lie. Those two. Defiled religion can probably be put in those two camps. Now, we're talking about, James is talking about pure religion and undefiled. Now, come back to my title. Is your religion an experience? Or is it a tradition or is it a nuisance? When I use the word experience, I'm not talking about feeling. One of the plagues that's hitting our conservative Mennonite churches is that people are making decisions about how they feel instead of by the truth of the word of God. And that grows, that's growing out of this antinomianism that it's just basically how I feel, it's kind of abstract. It's a, when I talk about experience, I'm not talking about feelings. While feelings are a part of the experience, I'm talking about something that happens in the soul and the life of the person when I talk about experience. And so Christianity is an experience Experiencing religion. I didn't say experimental. It's a, a religion where you experience something. The new birth is an experience. Regeneration, a new heart. It's a genuine heart experience. And without the new birth, religion either becomes a tradition or a nuisance. But when you have an experience with the divine... And marvel of marvels that Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life and lives there and takes up residency. Uh, that's an experience. <clears throat> Sanctification is an experience to be set apart. Sanctification is a hard experience that a person is set apart. It has to do with religion. Religion has to do with outward expression of worship. And sanctification is that it is an experience in the heart of a person where God does a work of grace and your heart you're set apart for Christian service to serve the Lord. And that's an ongoing experience. Well, we could talk a lot, a lot more about Christian experience. Ephesians talks about being filled with the Spirit. Romans 8 talks about the spirit of life in Christ. Philippians 2, 13 says that it is God who worketh in you, both the will and to do his good pleasure. Speaking of an experience, something that happens in the life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Something happens, he has an experience, he becomes a changed person. And so a good question is, is religion an experience? Is it a tradition or is it a nuisance? Do I have a genuine experience? Um, have I, has my life been affected and changed by the divine working in my heart and life? And Christianity is an experiential religion. That description of religion there is a description of religion without a hard experience. It happened in the Old Testament. It happens today. Isaiah 29, 13 reads like this. Wherefore the Lord saith, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips, they do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the precept of men. See, 
Religion was no longer an experience. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 15. This people draw near unto me with their mouth, but their heart and, their, with, and with their lips, but their heart is from from me. There's a gap. When, there's, when there becomes the gap between what we say with our lips and how we live, then religion is becoming a tradition. Um, you know, and, and we, we have to be careful. We, we love our hymns, we love our songs, but sometimes what we say with our lips and how we live, there's just such a gap. Uh, you know, we, we sing, I love to steal a while away from every cumbering care and spend the hour of setting day in humble, grateful prayer. And you know it's been months since you got alone with God and cracked the book. And so we sing these songs so gillibly. You know, and there's this gap between really where I'm living and what I'm saying. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. <laughs> really? Yeah. After I have my pickup paid for or my house paid for, you know, and so there's this gap. And when that happens, see, just because we have had an experience doesn't say it can't become a tradition. And Jesus said that Isaiah prophesied. He called them hypocrites. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, the word tradition. So much for the word religion. Tradition comes from a Latin word, uh, which means a surrender uh, to an idea, at least, a long-established custom or practice that has the effect of an unwritten law. It's also the idea sometimes of handing down orally of beliefs and customs from generation to generation. Now, there, there are godly traditions, there are ungodly traditions, and there are traditions that really don't make any difference. Godly traditions are applications and expressions of Bible principles. The Bible is a book of principles, and principles need application. And if we have the principle in our heart, there will be an application. And so, so generation after generation that applies godly principles, they're going to develop into traditions. And traditions are, there are godly traditions. Godly traditions are often symbolic in nature. Uh, the ordinances. We practice seven ordinances. And the ordinances are symbolic. An ordinance is something that's outward. It's symbolic, a sign, a symbol, or a rite that's symbolic of a deeper inner experience in the life of the believer. And they become a tradition, a godly tradition. But see, if we don't have in our hearts what that symbol stands for, it becomes just a dead tradition and not living. Godly traditions are a result of being doers of the word. James in this passage talks about be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. And so godly traditions are the result of being doers of the word. Now there's a difference between traditions 
and traditionalism. Someone has said that tradition is the living faith of the dead, traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Now, I think that's pretty well said. Tradition is the living faith of the dead, traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Now, what about this word nuisance? Is your religion an experience? Is it a tradition or is it a nuisance? A nuisance is something that is an annoyance, an inconvenience, an interruption. Pure religion is a result of action, not just words. James, in this passage that we're looking at, maybe I should go back to verse 21, verse 22, where he says, Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only. He's leading up to this matter of pure religion. Not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If a man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. And he behold himself goeth away and forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh in the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And then he goes on to talk about religion and true religion. Now the Bible also uses the word tradition. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught whether by word or our epistle. Next verse. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, even God, even the Father, which hath loved us and given us the everlasting consolation and good hope, through grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and work. Now there's the danger of experience becoming a tradition. And that happens by an improper focus. I've already suggested that when there's a gap between what we say uh, you know, we can give testimony, counsel time, we can give testimony, and yet we know that how we're living and where that is isn't the same. And so it can come by an improper focus, it can come by uh, a gradual shifting from what we experience to how we live, and uh, it can also come from uh, people who are taught application of Bible principles without knowledge as to why they're doing it or without a hard experience. Um, you might think that's not too much of a problem for us, but let's not take too much for granted. I had the shock of my life a few years ago working with a congregation some distance from home. I was asked to serve there as bishop for several years because of some issues there. And in that process, there was a need for an ordination. We went through the natural process of taking counsel, getting approval, having messages on qualifications, taking the votes, all like we normally do. And after the vote, when the votes were taken, there were four men that were nominated. And uh, we were getting ready to interview them. The morning of the inter interviews, um, the man, a man called me and said, Richard, he said, uh, I, uh, he just talked very slow. He said, I, I really, uh, I'm calling you to tell you that 
uh, I can't go through the lot. And I thought, okay. I said, why? Now this man was in the church for 20 some years, had children that were 20 years old. He was in the church for maybe 25 years. He was a song leader. He taught Sunday school. In fact, the congregation thought well of him. He had more votes than any of the four. And I said, why not? And he didn't answer and didn't answer. Uh, thought, did we lose contact? And finally he said, well, I need to tell you, I'm not a Christian. And I thought, no, this man's making up excuses. I said, I need to talk to you. So I went personally to visit him. And I still wasn't quite sure that this was just not an excuse. And I said, you're saying you are not a Christian. He said, that's right. I said, everybody thinks you're a Christian. He said, I know, I know. I said, how did this happen? He said, it's something you can learn. He said, I was a young man. He said, I had my eye on a certain girl. And I knew that if I was going to get this girl, I had to be a member of the church. And I knew what you do. You go to a revival meeting. You stand. And, and, and the preachers take you through instruction class. And they baptize you. And he said, I knew all the right answers. I knew what to say. He said, you learn. What I'm saying, it's possible to know all the right answers, go through all the procedures. This man was baptized. He taught Sunday school. He led singing, but he never had an experience with the Lord. It can happen. At the same time, there are those who have an experience with the Lord that can drift into plain, cold traditionalism. Go to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Jesus warned about traditionalism. Mark 7. I think I'll begin reading at verse 3. For the Pharisees, Mark 3, 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands often and eat, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things they be, which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and tablets, tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes approached him. Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders? And eat bread with unwashed hands. And he answered and said, Well, has Isaiah prophesied to you hypocrites, that is written, The people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other things you do. And he said, Full well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition. 
And Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother. Whoso curse his father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, If a man say to his father or mother, It is Corban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And you suffer him no more to do aught for his father and mother, making the word of God none effect by your tradition, which you have delivered, and many other things that you do. Now, he's going, said, Moses said, you're to honor your father and your mother. And it was understood that when parents got old, they didn't need social security, that the children would take care of the parents, see? But the Jews had this thing called Corban, and that was you'd come to the priest, and you'd say, Corban, and you're saying, all that I have, I am dedicating to God. That way you were free and let the rest of your siblings take care of your parents. And he says, by doing that, you're making the word of God none effect by your traditions. Colossians 2.8. He said, Paul said, beware that any man spoil you. He mentioned three things. Philosophy and vain deceit. Tradition of men and rudiments of the world. That would make a good message in itself. But he said, don't let any man spoil you. He's talking about going from a religion experience to tradition, to ideas of men. And the first thing he mentions is philosophy. And one of the things that's spoiling our conservative Mennonite churches is the influence of psychology. And one of the definitions of philosophy is a logical analysis of underlying patterns of conduct. And I am just appalled that most of our so-called counseling centers and our conservative churches have people that go to that fountain and drink to try to help people. Beware lest any man spoil you. What we need is a deep, genuine experience of repentance and calling upon the grace of God to change people's lives. And when we move away from that and drink at the fountain of psychology, we are moving away from a real, genuine Christian experience. The second thing he mentions here is tradition of men. Jesus talked about that. Rudiments of the world. Second Thessalonians 3.6, he says, Now we commend you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition you received of us. Now that's talking about good tradition, isn't it? Godly tradition. See, there are godly traditions, there are traditions of men, and there are traditions that are just neutral. See, uh, How does Chevrolet advertise? Something about apple pie, Chevrolet, something else. What is it? Anybody know? Do they still use that advertising? Is it ice cream, apple pie, Chevrolet? Is that what it is? Well, ice cream is not of a tradition, right? Is that a good tradition? Hmm? <laughs> ice cream is a good tradition. At least I think it is. See? So there are traditions that doesn't make any difference. See? It doesn't make any difference to eat ice cream or not. But there are evil traditions. Now, good traditions can become a hindrance. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. Here was an experience 
in the Old Testament. I mean, if you had been among them, this would have been quite an experience. Numbers 21, verse 4. The children of Israel were journeying from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to encompass the land of Edom. And they said the people were discouraged by the way, and they spake against Moses, verse 5, and against God and Moses, and said, Why'd you bring us out here? We'd been better off to die back in Egypt. There's nothing here to eat, there's no water, and we're getting tired of this manna. Verse 6 says, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people died. I think there was like 3,000 that died, if I'm correct. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against God. Pray to God for us. Take away these serpents. And Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, Take a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it will come to pass that everyone that is bitten, whosoever looketh shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on the pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent, he lived. Now you talk about an experience. Can you imagine these serpents going through the camp and people dying of being bitten and falling over here and there? And, and Moses sends word throughout the camp. He said, if anybody's bitten, come here. Look at that snake. Look at that pole. And people said, I'm going to give it a try. And they went over looked at that. They lived. Word got around through the camp. Hey, go over there and look at that snake. Look at that pole. Look at that brazen serpent. If you get bitten, you won't die if you look at that. It happened over and over and over. And everyone that looked let the brazen serpent live. And the ones that didn't look at the serpent died. Now you talk about an experience. See. Now go to 2 Kings chapter 18. 700 years later. That experience. King Hezekiah comes on the scene. And Hezekiah was an unusual man. 25 years old he became the king. And we must understand that a king is much different than a president. In our government, we have a president, and we have 435 representatives and, what, 100 senators now, or maybe a few more. And we have nine men that sit on the Supreme Court. These all make our government. You take all of that and put it together in one man, then you have a king. King Hezekiah. All authority rested in him. This man came in a time of apostasy. He came in at a time when religion became a tradition. And he began to change things. Notice what he did. 25 years old, he began to reign. He did that which was right in the sight of God. Oh, what, 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 a, what a thing to have God say about you. I, you know, I... Uh, <laughs> You know, Hilda and I are getting older, and we're, uh, we, we even here last year, we even put up our own tombstone. <laughs> My children said, that's morbid. Well, maybe it is morbid, but you've got to face reality. See? I said, we'll do that so you don't need to bother with it. Do you ever think about what you'd write on your tombstone? Here's what God wrote on this man's tombstone. He did that which was right in the sight of God. It don't matter what you put on your tombstone. It doesn't matter what some preacher says when your body's laying here about you. It does matter what God says. And here was the man that God said he did that which was right. Now notice, he said he removed the high places. 
He broke down the images. He cut down the groves. Now look what he did. And he broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. Think of it. This relic, this thing that was a symbol of that experience way back there 700 years ago. And he broke it in pieces. He said, for in those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. They began to worship the symbol rather than the God of the symbol. And he called it Nehushtan. He said, just a piece of brass. When people lose their experience with God, there's a tendency to worship symbols. And when people no longer experience God, then after a bit the traditions become a nuisance and a fertile ground for apostasy. In the book of Amos, it talks about the children of Israel, again, when religion had just become tradition. In fact, now it was a nuisance. Amos 5 says, When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn? Or the Sabbath that we may send forth wheat? Making the efforts small and the shekel great and falsifying the balances. When, when, you know, when's Sunday going to be over so I can get back to work? So, no. uh, when, when, when can I hit the road with my truck? You know, must I wait till 12 o'clock? I mean, you know, what does it matter if it's, you know, whatever. I just can't wait till Sunday gets there. This thing is Sunday just kind of a nuisance for me. You know, it gets in my way of what I'd like to do. Isaiah 58, God said, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath and do thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy of the Lord honorable, and thou shalt honor him, not doing my own ways, nor finding my own pleasure, but speaking thy own words. Then thou shalt delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Is the Lord's day an opportunity to walk with the Lord, and experience the blessing and serve him, or is it a nuisance, an interference with my plans? Is prayer meeting a nuisance? Sunday evening service. I understand you all have something going three nights a week. I mean, morning, Sunday morning, Sunday night, prayer meeting, right? That's quite a schedule. You know, a lot of our churches back home only have church once every four weeks in the evening. And then they can't even come. They have them sometimes. See. Well... Are these things nuisance? Is, uh, is passing the offering plate a nuisance? Well, here we go again, you know? Or is it a joyful experience, you know? Uh, God love with a cheerful giver? You know, is that a joyful experience? Where it's like, oh, thank God, just another opportunity to put money in here. Just, oh, I'm so grateful for that. Or, like the man I heard about, he just put a dollar in and he said under his breath, God be with you till we meet again, you know. Uh, is worship an experience, a tradition or a nuisance? Look at the ordinances. We, I said they're outward signs. Are the practice of the ordinance, the joyful, 
experience? Oh, I think of communion. You know, that can become a tradition. I'm thinking of a young girl, 25 years old. Never raised in a Christian home, never went to Sunday school, never went to church, never read a Bible. Went to college and lived a wicked life like a lot of college students do. Moved into our community. Her mother was an agnostic. Her father was an atheist while they were separated. This girl, our young people, showed interest in her. And after a couple of months, she became a Christian. And I remember serving her communion. When you'd come around and give her the bread, she'd break down in tears. She just was thankful for the blood of Jesus that took away her sin. She just wept. Communion was an experience for her. See? But we get to the place where we do it over and over, and it just can become a tradition. We could talk about all of them. The headship covering, ladies. Is that a joyful worship? Worship, religion is an outward expression of experience. Is that a joyful expression? I'm just so thankful to give an expression to what God has done in my heart. He's humbled me. I've come under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and I just love it. You ladies get asked, don't you? You go out in the mall. What's, What's that? thing you're wearing in your head. We get that all the time, right? Hilda was at Walmart, I guess it was, in one of her stores in town. A, a, a lady, a, a man walked up to him and said, uh, uh, why do you wear that thing on your head? Well, she said, uh, the Bible teaches that we are in submission. In submission to God, in submission to my husband. And he said, do you like that? Oh, she said, I just love it. He just turned and walked away. <laughs> See, I just love it. Well, we have a lot of blessings. I, the, the, your, your ministry reminded me what I preached about the last time I was here. I had forgotten. But they reminded me of it. And I think I talked about the blessings, something about the blessings of anabaptism or the blessings of whatever. You know, we talked about the blessings of Brotherhood assistance. You know, that is an experience. I could give you testimonies, blessings that I have received, but it can become. Is that, is that a, you know, whenever you hear of needs and is that just a tradition that we go through? Is it a nuisance? Well, we practice separation. Is that an experience? How about it, brethren? Wearing the plain suit, you know, is that a result of a hard experience of being separated to God? Is it a joyous expression of your walk with God, or is it a tradition? Is it just a tradition? You just do it because that's what the church says? Or is it a nuisance? Say. Well, we could talk about a lot of experiences. Ask your heart this morning. Religion.
Pure religion, undefiled. There is pure religion, there's defiled religion. Religion can be a deep, warm, joyous, ongoing experience, or it can drift into just being a tradition. Or it can become a nuisance. I'm working with young people, and you know, uh, I find that young people are, uh, uh, there's some fine young people. We have a group of fine students this year, and they're, they're wanting to know the will of God. I, I sense that he's there. They want to grow. They want to know why. They want to, and, and that's, that's an attitude God can bless. But you know, in our churches, there's a danger that after we get married and we settle down and we just kick it into neutral and get stuck and just coast. My experience in the evangelistic work that when a revival breaks in the congregation, it usually breaks to the young people. And that's not because the young people have more needs than what middle-aged people and older people do. But there's a danger of just leveling off and with the mundane things of life that we just kind of kick it in neutral and we lose the joy and the vibrancy of that experience in walking with God and religion becomes a tradition. Let's not let that happen. This morning, I trust that each of you know where you are. And while it can move from an experience to addition to a nuisance, you can go the other way. If your heart's set towards God, it can go the other way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sought us. We love you because you first loved us. We come to you because you've called us. We thank you, our Father, for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for that experience of our sins being rolled away. We thank you for the cleansing of the blood. We thank you, our Father, for the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. We thank you for your word, which guides us and teaches us. And our Father, I pray today that you will help us to keep close to you, that we may not allow the things of this world the philosophy of the world, the traditions of men, the rudiments of the world. James says the pure religion keeps himself unspotted from the world. May our religion, our outward expression of worship, be genuine, true. Convict us, our Father, forgive us, wherein we have just been too satisfied to keep doing things that without a hard experience. Bless this congregation. Bless every family, fathers and mothers, as they endeavor to raise their children up, that they might have that experience themselves and that their young people might come to know Christ and live for him. In his name we pray. Amen.